A 2018 national census showed that in the U.S., in America, listen, 19.5 million children under 18 live without a father in the home. Let me say it again. 19.5 million children live without a father in the home. And one political commentator said, actually, America's crisis is a lack of fathers in the home. And I do agree with that. These statistics are staggering because it means that 25% of the American children grow up without a father around them. Can you imagine the future of these children? Many studies have shown that the, the absence of a father in the home causes a variety of negative impacts in the lives of children. According to psychology today, the children who lack their father's involvement in their lives more likely struggle with their emotions and episodic bouts of self-loathing. And fatherless children have more difficulties with social adjustments, making friends, and controlling their behaviors. For example, 85% of children um, and teens with behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 85% of struggling children are from fatherless homes. And 71% of high school dropouts are fatherless, and many of children without a father have more trouble academically. And over 70% of all adolescent patients in drug and alcoholic treatment centers originate from homes without fathers. And 85% of youth in prison have an absent father, and fatherless children are more likely to commit a crime and go to jail even after they grow up. The impact of fatherlessness goes long. And 90% of runaway children have an absent father. The list can go on and on. What we can conclude about fatherlessness in the home is that it can cause disastrous results in children's lives. Have you ever heard about a fatherless daughter syndrome? A fatherless daughter syndrome is a disorder of women's emotional system that leads to repeated dysfunctional relationship decisions, especially in the areas of trust and self-worth. And it's caused by the lack of a father or a father and daughter bond which leads to the daughter not having a clear understanding of what a healthy, loving male-female relationship looks like. And it can be a lifelong syndrome if the, sim the symptoms go unrecognized and unacknowledged. And I got the permission from my wife, so I can say it. Um, she lost her dad when she was six. He died of lung cancer, and she grew up without a father. And when we, she and I first met, actually, she had a little bit of this uh, syndrome. And because of the deficient things in her grow, growing up, she, has, she was suffering with a lack of confidence, self-doubt, a lot of second-guessing. But what I'm trying to say today is not that you need to live with it if you didn't have father with you, but because, because you know, I've witnessed in my wife's life, that even though you had that past, you can have hope in Christ because he restores your heart from inside. So many people suffer from the lack of confidence, self-doubt, and second-guessing because of the lack of fatherly love and care. That's the problem we have to deal with today. But here, what we have to remember is that this kind of emotional deprivation is not only for those who are from fatherless or broken homes. Even with the loving and caring parents, so many people's lives are still restless. Isn't it? Why spiritually, why, why, why is it so? Spiritually speaking, we are all born fatherless. 
We are all born as orphans who greatly suffer emotionally, mentally, and spiritually due to the lack of genuine love. So if any of us still suffering from this emotional and spiritual de deprivation, we must listen to the comforting and encouraging words of Paul in today's text. Let me read the text again, Romans 8, 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So the main idea of this message this is, is this. Through Christ, the loving Father adopts spiritually and emotionally deprived slaves as his dear children and rightful heirs. So I want to submit to you the first um, point of today's message. Without Christ, we live under the slavery of fear without hope. Without Christ, we live under the slavery of fear and without hope. So verse 15, Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. But does that mean we used to fear because we were under the spirit of bondage? Paul, in this verse, makes sure of the fact that Christians are no longer under the bondage of fear. It means that in the past, when we were without Christ, we were under this bondage that made us fearful. Why do people without fear, uh, without Christ, live with fear? According to Ephesians 2, we used to be sons of disobedience who were dead in trespasses and our sins and walked according to the course of this world and the devil. So we were by nature the children of wrath. Especially we who are Gentiles were called uncircumcision, who were once without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Simply put, without Christ, we had every reason to live in fear. We were under the slavery of the law. That's uh, the, the, the first blank you find in, under the subcategory there. We were under the slavery of the law. We're only thinking that we could save ourselves by the observation of the law. And we were under the bondage of death, fearing the eternal punishment that we deserved as sinners. You know, we try to keep the law to make God somehow save us. Yeah, we also were doing this in fear because we knew that our work is not perfect. And also third, we were under God's wrath, languishing in the filthy lust and desires of our own flesh as the children of Satan. So we had every reason to live in fear. But what is amazing about the salvation God provides in Christ is that it is not only about the forgiveness of sins, and going to heaven. Through Christ's work of redemption, God delivers us from the slavery of the devil, sin, and the law, and from the bondage of death, world, and the flesh. Most astonishingly, God turns the children of wrath into the children of love. Can you imagine? They used to live, you used to live in a filthy place. 
Nobody cared for you. Or rather, everybody was despising you and hurling contempt at you. But one day, a generous rich man comes by and says, I decided to love you. Why don't you be my son? Why don't you be my daughter? That's what happened in the redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ. God adopts the hell-deserving sinners as his beloved children. So here's our second point over today's message. In Christ, we can live with confidence as the adopted children of the Heavenly Father. In Christ, we can live with confidence as the adopted children of the Heavenly Father. So we don't have to fear any longer, but we can live with confidence. So in Christ, we are freed from the spirit of bondage to fear again, according to verse 14. Why? Because we are now the sons of God who have received the spirit of adoption in verse 15. So what is adoption? Many Christians are often confused between adoption and regeneration. It is understandable because both ideas involve the concept of becoming God's children. You know, by being born again, you become a child of God. And by being adopted, you become a child of God. Yet, adoption and regeneration are two distinct doctrines because adoption primarily highlights the great privileges of becoming God's children without having his biological DNA. So when you adopt a child, this child doesn't become your biological child. Rather, this this child is not related to me in any way biologically. Yet, I treat this son or daughter as if he or she was my biological child. That's the concept of adoption, doctrine of adoption. So that although I have no right actually to claim the inheritance my adoptive father has, but because he chose to adopt me, adopt me, now I can claim their privileges. That's the main idea of the adoption in the Bible. At the same time, the regeneration highlights the newness of the Christian walk following the new birth. And we read, you know, we talked about John 3 this morning, and it, the, the language of born again or born from above. That's a concept of regeneration. So by, in, in regeneration, God imparts his new nature. Is this holy nature in us by the entering of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But what's interesting is both ideas are intimately related to the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So both are work of the Holy Spirit, but two ideas are not necessarily the same things, but they are two different ideas that dip, differently emphasize two ideas. The reason the doctrine of the adoption is so important is that God could make us creatures who are spiritually alive and yet do not share the special privileges of being his family members. Let me explain what I mean by this. Aren't good angels like that? The good angels actually shared God's holiness. Did you know that? That's why they are called holy angels. They do have God's nature. And even in the Old Testament, they are called the sons of God, right? Because they share God's Holiness, but does it mean that they do believe they do enjoy the privileges of being God's children? No, these good angels have no right to claim all the privileges of being part of God's household. Rather, they were they are just servants of God, and they are going to serve us when Christ comes 
back. And therefore, it would have been possible for God to grant us regeneration without adoption. You know what I'm, where, where I'm getting at? So he could just give us a new life, but not the privileges of the, the right to claim the, 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 all the blessings that are in Christ. But thankfully, God decided to adopt us into his family and make us sons who have the right to inherit the inheritance in Christ. And actually in Greek, if you look at the word adoption, it involves the word son. So even women here, ladies, you are, spiritually speaking, a son of God. Why? Because in the ancient world, we know only the sons could claim the inheritance of the father. So in Christ, we are all spiritually sons of God. Why? Because we have given, we have been given this right to claim all the inheritance that is in stored in God through Christ. So verse 17, Paul says, And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and joined heirs with Christ. So in ad adopting us as ch children of God, all three persons of the Trinity is actively at work. And this is an amazing, actually, how the three persons of the triune God works in this process. First, the Father plans and executes our adoption. If you look at verse 14 again, Paul says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And God actually planned this adoption before the foundation of the world. And Ephesians 1, 5 and 6 says, Having predestinated us to, us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Do you see here? God planned our adoption before the foundation of the world. Even everything before everything began, he planned to adopt, adopt us as sons of God. The Father is more than happy to embrace us as our heavenly Father and love to be called by us Abba. Father. And actually, uh, in Korean, we have term Appa, which is actually dad in English. And it's very close to that sound. And verse 15, Paul says, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And we read it in Galatians 4 this morning again, Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And Paul emphasized this idea that we can, through the spirit of adoption, call God our Abba, Father. The Aramic term Abba conveys the idea of intimacy. It is not necessarily a term that a young child uses for his father, like daddy or dad or papa. And some actually preachers have done it, uh, but it's not really necessarily that term in the Aramic idea. Yet still, it's an affectionate term that expressed the loving relationship between the father and his son in the ancient world. And it is significant that Abba is the term Jesus himself used to call the Heavenly Father in Mark 14.36. What does that mean? Jesus called the Father Abba, and we can call the Father Abba. So it means we Christians have a relationship to God that is like Christ's own relationship to the Father. So the, our relationship to the Father and Jesus' relationship to the Father 
They are not that different, although, different, although they are not exactly the same, yet Christ shared his sonship with us so that we can call the Father, our Abba Father, without hesitation. And in adopting us, God has taken no half measures. Uh, commentary Moose says, we have been made full members of the family and partakers of all the privileges belonging to members of that family. So it is not that God gives us a partial privileges of being God's, uh, be, being part of God's household. Rather, He gives everything that belongs to His Son to us in the redemption His Son wrought for us. That's what it means to be called the sons of God who call God our Abba Father. So we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ in verse 17. So the concept of being joint heirs with Christ leads us to think about Christ's work in our adoption into God's family. So second, the Father plans and executes our adoption, and the Son redeems us with the great cost for our adoption and shares his sonship with us. And the reason we can be called sons of God is because Christ, the Son of God, shared his sonship with us. That's the only reason why we can be called the sons of God. So we call Jesus Christ the firstborn among many brothers. So Romans 8.29, For whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So in a sense, Christ is our elderly brother. He willingly became our first brother so that we can be called the children of God. So what did he exactly do for our adoption? What did Christ do for us in our adoption? Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. In Romans, Paul says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in us, helps us to call God Abba, Father. And Galatians 4, Paul says the Spirit of the Son is in you, who is actually the Holy Spirit, and helps us to call God our Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So Christ came under the law. Why? So that he can deliver us from the curse of the law. Christ fulfilled all the requirement of the law on our behalf and became the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's Romans 10.4. So he became the end of the law. What does that mean? He fulfilled every requirement of the law and earned the righteousness that's required according to God's law and although we didn't keep that law, and we by no means, by any means, met that requirement, he grants us his righteousness. So now we are standing before God without any, as if, as, so we are standing before God as if we, we are sinless. Why? Because God is looking on his son's record instead of looking at our record. So that's the justification the doctrine of justification. And because of that thing, now we can be called sons of God legitimately. 
God has done a great work to remove the hindrance between himself and us. How? By sending his son to live under the law and fulfill all the requirements of the law and the righteousness he fulfilled, he earned, now is imputed to us as his dear sons. So there's nothing we can do to become rightful heirs of God except that we believe what Christ accomplished through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. That's the gospel, the message of the gospel. We believe so that we can be adopted into the family of God. That's what Paul is trying to say here. The Spirit, again, thirdly, the Spirit gives us the assurance that we are truly beloved children of God. So how do we know that we are no longer the children of wrath, but the children of God? The evidence of our adoption is the Holy Spirit who indwells all believers. I want to emphasize every believer. If you don't have the Spirit, you are not Christ. But if you do have the Holy Spirit, you are Christ. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So you see the Father plans and executes the adoption. And the Son paid the, the cost of our adoption by laying down his life for us. And the Holy Spirit gives us assurance that it is not a theoretic idea, but this is a reality of our spiritual spirituality, that Christ truly died for our sins and bought us with a great price so that now we can be called by God, children of God, and we can call our God, Abba, Father. And that's what the Holy Spirit is actually doing in our hearts. So the triumph God has done great things to make us sons of God, right? So before knowing this truth, we lived in fear without hope. But because we have been adopted into the family of God, we no longer live in fear. We now can live with confidence as the adopted children of a loving Heavenly Father. Can you imagine being a 10-year-old orphan girl yourself? Just imagine. You grew up in the orphanage. And you know that you were abandoned by your biological parents. And most of the orphan friends that you had, you grew up with, actually they, many of them have been already adopted and left the orphanage. Now you're living there almost by yourself, hoping and praying every night, God, maybe tomorrow some loving family come and adopt me into themselves. And there was a loving a very loving and kind couple who had frequently visited you and spent time with you. And their names are Mr. and Mrs. Robertson. And one day during a normal visit, Mr. Robertson took out a letter and begins to read it to you. And the content of the letter is like this. Listen, Kylie, your name's Kylie. I can remember the moment I met you. I walked into the orphanage and saw you standing there. From now on, We would get sushi together. It would be crazy at our house, and we would play lots of video games together. I absolutely would love going with all your sports games. I'd love watching you grow into beautiful lady. Young lady you are. And I love being the person you come to. 
I love being the person you come to when you are hurt or scared. I can't wait to be there when you graduate. I can't wait to see you have the time of your life when you go to college. But most of all, I look forward to the day I walk you down the aisle on the day you get married because that's what fathers do. And the reason I could say this is because today is the day I get to adopt you. Can you imagine hearing that? And I didn't create this letter, actually. This is a literal letter that was written by a man who was reading it to a girl who, whom he was adopting. And I was watching this video, and I had to weep over the video. This is a real letter, and this is real life. And when Kylie heard the last line that she would be adopted by this gentleman, she flung herself into the arms of her new dad, sobbing uncontrollably, uncontrollably out of joy and gratitude, not able to say a word. That's what she did, standing before him, hearing him saying, I will adopt you today. Do you think Kylie would ever feel abandoned and left alone from that day on? No, she would never feel alone. She would never feel abandoned. That's exactly what happened to us, spiritually speaking. We were abandoned orphans without father. Yet God somehow, out of infinite wisdom and grace, chose to adopt us into his family. I have a question for you. Do you ever feel alone, lonely, unloved, and uncared for? Then what you need to know is that God is ready to adopt you into his family. If you believe the gospel message, if any of you know that you're not a part of this family, just believe the gospel and he will adopt you into his loving arms. If you already believe this message but still feel unloved and uncared for, then what you need, to, what you need is not something extraordinary, but you need a reminder that the loving and heavenly father is your father and you don't have to worry about anything. I'm saying you don't have to worry about anything. Why? Matthew 10, 29 through 31, the Lord Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. When we know the the, the master, the owner, and the sovereign of the universe cares for us. Why should we fear anything? That is very dumb. I'm sorry to say the word dumb there. Very stupid. If you fear anything when you know the father, your father is the, the owner of the universe. Not, I'm not talking about the owner of the United States. I'm not talking about the, uni, the owner of the entire world. But your father is the owner of the entire universe. And why should you fear anything? That's Jesus' logic here. The greatest benefit of our adoption into God's family is that we can speak to God and relate to him as a good and loving, loving father. We now relate to God as a, not, a, not as a slave, but relate to him as a, as a child, as if a child relates to his father. Like I already said, God gives us an internal witness from the Holy Spirit that causes us intrinsically call God our Father. So the Spirit's internal witness that we are God's children is not only for a few chosen believers, but for every Christian who has the Holy Spirit. 
And this relationship to God as our Father is the foundation of many other blessings of the Christian life. As our loving and caring Father, God loves us, understands us, takes care of our needs, and gives us many good gifts. In Matthew 7, 11, the Lord again said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, speaking to earthly fathers, human fathers, do you know how to treat your children well? How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to you who ask him? I'm a dad. I know how lo loving I am to my children. I would give my heart to my daughter. I would give my entire lungs to my son if they need him. And more than that, God feels more than that about us. Then why should we fear anything on earth? The best gift among God's many adoption gifts is the Holy Spirit who lives within us to comfort and empower us to live the Christian life. The Holy Spirit is not only the guide for our Christian life, but also the guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. That's Ephesians 1.14. Paul says the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our adoption and of our eternal inheritance. The Holy Spirit is like a decree of, of adoption in the modern, modern adoption process. What is a decree of adoption? At the end of the adoption process, the adoptive parents receive a decree of adoption which legally declares that their adopted child has the same legal status including all legal rights and obligations as if he or she were the biological child of the adoptive parents. So this decree of adoption finalizes that this adopted child is mine. And even the biological parents cannot claim this child back. And that's what Holy Spirit is. Once a decree of adoption is issued, nothing can sever your child from you. And just like that, if we have the Holy Spirit, who is our decree of adoption, then no one can claim us from the hands of God. And that is what the Holy Spirit is and what he does in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us and legally confirms that we are no longer the children of the devil, but the children of God who have the every right to claim the eternal inheritance that belongs to God. Further, there's another important benefit of our adoption. Because we all together belong to the household of God, we are brothers and sisters to each other. So I'm not a, a lone child. I know God has adopted many of you here as well. So we have the same Heavenly Father, we have the same older brother, Jesus Christ, and we have the same Holy Spirit who bound, binds us in perfect unity. And of course, you know, there's an idiom, blood is thicker than water. And did you know that we are now related to each other through the thickest blood? Whose blood is that? The blood, the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, that which established the eternal covenant, the new covenant that we just celebrated this morning. So we are not here together to compete with each other, but to love and care for each other as your children of God. That is what it means to be part of God's household. The truth that we belong to God's household must be the source of our courage and confidence. Your confidence is not from yourself. It's not about your ability, but it's about God's love 
that is shown to you in Christ's love. Can I have a tissue, please? It's empty here. Sorry. <laughs> I don't want you to hear me sniffing throughout the sermon. Yes, it has to be the source of our courage and comfort, right? So J.I. Packer, a, a theologian, said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. And we, you know, call God Father in our prayer every day. But do we fathom the weight of it? Do we really, are we really pleased and comforted, being filled with confidence? Yes, the owner, the master, the sovereign of the universe is my Father. There's nothing between him and me so that I can have confidence in, not in me, but in God, so that I can live confidently with my life. So we had no value outside Christ. But because of Christ, God treats us as his dear, loving children. What an amazing God we serve, right? What should we do then about this truth? What does this truth practically mean in our daily life? That's point number three. For Christ, we must confidently face present hardship as glorious heirs of God. For Christ, we must confidently face present hardship as glorious heirs of God. The Christian, Christian life is not easy, and that's normal. It's not, I hope it's not a new news to you. Christian life is not easy, and it's very normal. No wonder why Paul talks about the present sufferings the Christian life in the Christian life when he talks about the glory we would receive in the future. Verse 17, it says, If indeed we suffer with him, with Christ, we may also be glorified together. So why do you think the normal Christian life is a difficult life? It's because our religion is Christianity. Have you considered that? Our religion's name is Christianity. It's from the word Christ. And do you know the title of our, our, our title? We are called Christian, right? We are the followers of Christ. And what did Christ do to make us children of God? He suffered. He took up his cross before enjoying the glory that was coming after it. So he said in Mark 8, 34, Whosoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. From the get-go, the Lord wasn't uh, shy away from this reality. Hey, folks, I'm going to give you this great thing called adoption into the household of God. But remember, I suffered for you, so be ready to suffer with me. And that's what Paul says, Philippians 1, 29 and 34. To you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So when you say, I believe Jesus, it means that you also need to suffer for him. That's very normal as Christians. Verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is 
Uh, now here is in me. But the thing is this, though we suffer, we do not suffer without hope. So rather we suffer with the hope of the coming glory. That's the way we suffer. We hopefully suffer, if it makes sense to you. We suffer with Christ who suffered for us. We will also be glorified together with him. Again, that's verse 17. So Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us at Christ's return. That's verse 18 and verse 19 as well. So we, the sufferings we receive for Christ on earth now can't be compared to the glory that we are going to enjoy when he comes back. So that's why we suffer with hope. So we don't suffer with fear, but we suffer with hope. Let's be really realistic. What did Christ have to endure? What did Christ have to endure before enjoy the glory, enjoy the glory of his crown as the king? He had to endure the hardship of the cross. If our Lord had to take that path from suffering to glory, why should we who are his followers expect otherwise? It doesn't make sense. If our Lord went through from suffering to glory, our life's pattern has to be the same. So, if Christ, uh, yeah, so here it is very important to understand what the inheritance is, right? I mean, so what kind of inheritance do we receive in Christ? Uh, this is uh, something that we have to remember because, you know, we need to know the reward of our suffering now. And Paul says in verse 17, again, if we are children, then we are heirs. And he says, heirs of God, heirs of God. The phrase heirs of God doesn't merely mean that we will inherit the promised blessings of God. It rather expresses the idea that we will inherit God himself. Did you, did you catch that? Our inheritance is not the things that belong to God, but our inheritance is God himself. Amazingly, the inheritance we will enjoy forever is God himself. And what we are going to enjoy forever is not a thing, but God himself. So have you thought about Jeremiah? I think about him quite often because his life was quite miserable. <laughs> From the get-go, God told him, hey, you're going to preach to your, my people and they're going to reject you. Jeremiah knew it. And sometimes he was discouraged. He didn't want to say anything, but there was something burning in his bones. He had to proclaim the word of God to his people. And he finally saw the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And soon after the fall of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, he wrote Lamentations. We all know that. You know, Lamentation comes after the book of Jeremiah. And there in chapter 3, verse 24, after experiencing the fall of Jerusalem, which means the temple was gone, all the priesthood system was gone, all the sacrificial system was gone, it was as if the presence of God was all entirely gone from the land of Israel. Yet he wrote, Lamentations 3.24, So Jeremiah said in the middle of the nation's destruction, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. Can you believe what he said? He lost everything. His nation lost everything. Yet he said, my portion is God. 
And so I still hope in him. This is an astonishing reality of our adoption. God is our portion, and we share his glory with us just like he shares it with his son, Jesus Christ. Amazingly, the sharing of God's glory with us has already begun, and it will be fully realized at Christ's return. So John 17, let's go there, John 17. And there you find an amazing truth concerning the glory Jesus shares with his disciples. John 17, 22, the Lord says, The glory which you, Father, gave me, I have given them, for them here, his disciples present at the site, and also those who will believe him and become disciples in the future. Again, let me say it again. The glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. You see here? Christ, through Christ, God doesn't just love us, but he has given his glory with us. He shares his glory with us as if he shares his glory with his son. Let's come back to Romans 8. In Romans 8, you find an amazing truth. After the text, today's text, Paul says in verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom, and whom he justified, these he, did he, these he also what? glorified. You see here? This is the ultimate end of our salvation. God sharing his glory with us as if he shares his glory with the Son. When we know and believe this truth, how can we still suffer from the lack of confidence, self-doubt, or second-guessing ourselves? This confidence we have is not from ourselves, but from the triune God who has adopted us into his own family as his dear children and the glory that he shares with us in Christ. Of course, this glory hasn't been fully revealed yet. When Christ comes back, we will fully realize it. We will touch it on our skin, the glory of God. And just like Moses' face was shining, as they have also the reflection of God's glory for a moment, our entire thing, whatever thing that may be, will shine forth the glory that God would share with us as if he shares that with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So through Christ, the loving Father adopts us who are spiritually and emotionally deprived slaves as his dear children and rightful heirs. And we no longer need to fear anything in this world. Why should we fear anything if God is for us? So let me go back to Romans 8 again, verse 31. Then what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies 
who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. You see, this is lamentation. This is Jeremiah. We are treated like a slaughtered sheep on earth. But look, that's not the end of our story. Verse 17, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? God is our portion. He's us, ours. I can enjoy every single part of God because what Christ has done for me. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, Death nor any other creative thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the title of the sermon is Adopted by God, A Journey from Fear to Confidence. And the world is big, you know, crazy with the self-esteem, how to boost our self-esteem. But now can you see how we can boost our self-esteem? It's not necessarily the self-esteem there. It's not self-confidence at all. But it's God confidence, which is external to us, yet somehow through the power of the Holy Spirit that becomes part of us. This is not confidence that is based on temporary things. But this is a confidence we have on the permanent thing, the eternal thing, God Himself, that He is our portion. He's mine, and I'm His, so that I don't have to fear anything. I can look into the eyes of any person on the earth, maybe President Biden. Or in my case, President Yoon in South Korea, I can look in their eyes and say, I don't fear you, but I fear the one above you. Nobody can stop me from proclaiming this truth to the world, that Jesus died for sinners, to adopt them as God's dear children. And that's what we are, and that's what we do. Have you taken this journey from fear to confidence? You can start this joyful journey today only if you come to the loving Heavenly Father by placing your faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's all for you. You can take it. And those who are already believers, already dear children of God, don't be discouraged, people. Your brothers and sisters, you don't have to fear anything. You don't have to suffer from lack of confidence, self-doubt, second-guessing, because God is for you. Who can be against you? Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your love to us. You are so beautiful, Father. And what you've done for us through Christ is unfathomable. Lord, I'm so thankful. I'm from South Korea. I was born and raised there. I had nothing to do with these people sitting today. But somehow you sent me here and to proclaim this truth to these dear people. And I love them because you love them. And I know you love them so dearly. And I know also that some of them are so discouraged today. Precious Father, would you please do it again in the hearts of those who are discouraged, that your spirit would speak to those hearts, that you would please encourage them and comfort them and help them to face the hardship as the dear heirs of God, not like as if they are victims or as if they are losers, 
but help all of us to face our hardship as victors in Christ because we are more better. We are better than the conquerors in Christ because of his love to us. And so, Lord, uh, there, there may be some who are not part of God's family yet here this morning. And we pray that this, those people who do not know you as their God and their Father, we pray that please convict their hearts and help them to wide open their heart to you and embrace Christ as their Savior. And you do mighty work that you can only do. And we commit everything to your hand. Please take it from now on and do everything for your glory and honor and help all of our church people to be energized by this truth that we would live confidently facing hardships, that we would bring glory to Christ because of what he has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.